Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Island of Clouds? Is that what it, the translation was in the book? I th- something like that? I think mm-hmm. so. Uh, special Cloud edition. But they're, all, they're all special, guys. Uh, th- we're doing another episode of our Book Nerd Movie Club, this time on Jurassic Park, which I realized 1990 was a very big year for you, Amanda. It was the year the movie <laughs> of Hunt for Red October came out and the novel <laughs> Jurassic Park was published. How old were you? In, were you eight-ish? How old were you in 1990? In 1990, I was six. Six. So, okay. So, we'll, we'll talk mm-hmm. about how we came to it uh, in a moment. But um, for those of you who listen to Amanda, I geek out about Hunt for Red October. <laughs> it's so wild. I was thinking about this. I mean, I, I kind of feel like I have a lot to say and not a lot to say about Jurassic Park because it's so part of my pop cultural pantheon, um, my, my pop culture DNA, um, to, to bring the metaphor mm-hmm. back around that I'm not, not even sure what to say. But I'm not sure what you think about, Amanda, that, that Hunt for Red October was 90 and Jurassic Park movie was 93, it feels like they're 40 years different in terms of style, <laughs> in terms of production yes. design, what was possible. It's wild that that was three years between movies. There's even a woman in this one. Well, it's crazy. <laughs> one single one woman. One single, <laughs> one single woman. Well, there's um, also the girl, the little girl. So Yeah, not a woman, I guess, uh, technically. Two it females. Depends on how we do about this. And do well, all ta- the dinosaurs, though. Right, <laughs> right. I guess if... But do, they ta- do those female dinosaurs talk to each other about something that's not, a, not man? a man? No, they're all talking about Ian Malcolm, <laughs> all of them. I feel like Ellie Sattler popping the trikes, microvesicles counts as passing the Bechdel oh. test. Uh, that's pretty intimate there uh, for a moment. Oh. Um, Amanda, why don't you start? When, when was your... Fr- uh, for you, for those of you who don't know, uh, Jurassic Park is probably more important to Amanda than any of the rest of us, right, uh, Rebecca? Like <laughs> this is Amanda's uh, pinata to to whack, whack away on. I think mostly. Yes, um, yeah, I I think it would be like obviously as soon as we started talking about doing a show on Jurassic about Jurassic Park, it was like, well, of course Amanda's going to be on this episode. <laughs> it wasn't clear if there were going to be other guests. It would just be Amanda, <laughs> right? It might just be Amanda. Right. I could absolutely monologue for an hour. <laughs> You can uh, or longer. Okay, I have. I mean, I've heard you monologue about this for yes. uh, probably twenty minutes straight. <laughs> so. so my introduction to Jurassic Park <laughs> was that my grandfather was a like you know raised during the Depression dumpster diver. He liked to go around and collect trash that people put out on their sidewalks on trash day, and he at one day collected a like giant cardboard box full of paperback novels that he gave to me because he knew I liked to read. However, I was way too young for everything in that box, which included a bunch of like Harlequin romances, mm-hmm. all, the full collection of Stephen King novels out at the time. I read The Shining when I was eight. That's how that happened. Oh, yep. Mm-hmm. That happened to me at 10. Ugh. Way too soon. Too soon. I'm still terrified of topiary animals. Don't know why. <laughs> that stuck with me. But also Jurassic Park. So I read Jurassic Park because my grandpa found it in the trash. I immediately became obsessed with it. How old were you? And then how I taught myself. I was eight or nine. 
So yeah. before the movie, but the movie was yes. then coming out or just out or something like that, it sounds like. Around, around yeah, the movie came out after I had read the book. Okay. Um, and I taught myself to type on our terrible old computer by typing out the entirety of Jurassic Park. <laughs> like I cracked the spine, popped it wait up a, on the screen, and then typed out the whole thing. <laughs> wait a minute. I don't think I knew this. Yeah. Well, if, if you don't mind me saying, um, why? Why? I don't, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Because, well, it was the first computer that we had, yeah. and you I wanted do to master it. it. Yeah, sure. I wanted to get good at it. And that doesn't sound like my, you at all, Amanda. That you, you something dropped in your lap, and for no reason other than the sake of mastery, you pounded away 450 pages of Jurassic. Park. I did. I did, including the DNA sequence. Oh, and the, all the computer no. code. And not the fractals. Oh, not I didn't the fractals, do the fractals yeah. either, obviously. <laughs> um, and then when the movie came out, my mother would not let me see it. And so I snuck it. Uh, I had to wait until it came out on VHS. And I like snuck watched it at my, my godmother's house with my, mm. I don't know what you call them, god cousins, like her kids that I grew up with. Um, and I found it totally terrifying and had a bunch of nightmares mm. and like loved it. And it's just <laughs> all stuck with me. Wow. Well, we should have had you go last because Rebecca and yep. I are going to be pale imitations of that. Rebecca, I don't think I think you said you hadn't read the book before we were gearing up to do that. I no, this was my first experience reading the book. Um, I don't have a memory of my pop culture life without Jurassic yeah. Park. I'm two years older than Amanda. So I was um, I had just turned 10 when the movie came out. That's a great maybe, age maybe to see 11. the movie. That's maybe the perfect yeah. age to see the movie, frankly, when it mm-hmm. came out and first. I'm sure that we either saw it in the theater or would have rented it from Blockbuster, like, right after. Mm-hmm. It's And I feel like I have known it my entire life. Um, I took piano at that time in my life, only really from, like, ages 8 to 11. And this fell in that window. And I would try to pick out things that I had heard on the piano. So I have a really clear memory of um, having watched Jurassic Park probably for like the 15th time on the Blockbuster rental and then walking into the little sitting room that had the piano in it and picking out the like, da na 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 and like, you know, trying to impress my parents that I had figured it out. Um, But it's like for as long as I have memories of watching movies, Jurassic Park is one of them and it was really interesting it was an interesting challenge to read the book and try to have a like anything even resembling a blank slate about what the characters looked like like there was no description that Crichton could give about these people that would erase like Mm -hmm. Ian Malcolm as or Jeff Goldblum as Ian Malcolm Mm -hmm. in my mind Um, just it's indelible for me your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply was 15 in the summer of 93 when the movie came out we, this is my story is weird not as uh, obsessive maybe as amanda's but um <laughs> i was actually i was on a, i had just come back it came out while i was on a two-week 
class trip to Germany, weirdly. And this was pre-internet, so like we saw trailers, but you didn't you didn't have the hypes and the memes and the things you knew, especially at fifteen. So we were very excited about it, but all my friends had seen it while I was gone. And I just heard people were losing their freaking mind about it. And I was like, okay, in a classic Jeff way, let's calm down. That was my move. Like, let's calm down about this. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. And I was all jet lagged. So I think, I think my dad and I went to like an 8.30 a.m. showing the day after I got back from Germany. And I was just completely blown away. I, I didn't know. I, I was disarmed by the whole experience. And we'll get into this. I think, again... Some of this is just showing age and where, and depending on how old you are, going to have different answers. I think the single greatest archetype of a summer blockbuster movie, I think, is Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could talk to me about Star Wars, you could talk to me about Back to the Future, but it's in the it's the conversation of that. And I think as we get into it, especially the movie version, it's it's all ages. No one is immune to the charms, the delight, the surprise, the fear of what goes on there. Um, it's a classic all quadrant movie, uh, you know, kids, adults, moms, dads, couples, grandparents, every, because it's dinosaurs, because of the way it's put together. Mm-hmm. It's just a wonderful popcorn movie. I don't think anything's really come close, even in the age of these IP Star Wars Avengers. I just don't think there's anything that's even close in my mind. Yeah, I think I it's pretty perfect. Yeah. And reading something that I was Googling, you know, over the last couple of weeks as I've been reading the book, um, gave the framing that Crichton invented really like the tech thriller mm. and the science thriller. Um, and was talking about Jurassic Park and Sphere and some of the other, you know, Andromeda strain, some of the other books. And it's hard to imagine like what we have as summer movies now, uh, you know, Marvel stuff aside, but there are like literal decades yeah. of movies built out, off of this archetype and sort of in the image of like science experiment gone awry mm-hmm. uh, that we wouldn't have had, I think, without Jurassic Park. Amanda, you were going to say something. You want to talk about sort of Jurassic Park in the cultural firmament for a moment before we start diving into more specific stuff. I don't, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I just agree with you. Okay. It's there's, there's no more all, all appealing. Mm-hmm. Like that's not a, great term but there I don't think there's a, a movie that I can think of that is more appealing to every audience member it doesn't hurt that there's like no sexuality whatsoever except the ones that millennials who are now in their 30s have put on Jeff Goldblum mm. but there's like no actual sexuality in the movie there's hints that you know uh, Sam Neill and Laura Dern are together uh, well I mean he does say that but right. like you wouldn't know if he didn't flat out say it and you can tell that Malcolm's a bit of a player but none of that is explicit it's just adventure with a bit of morality question that doesn't actually affect anyone's daily life in any kind of real way. Right. Like the stakes for the characters are super high, but the stakes for the audience are non-existent. So yeah. it's so easy to watch. Mm-hmm. And I also think that looking back on it, um, when I was watching it with my kids who were eight and have seen, you know, these like big new, they've seen the new versions of Jurassic Park and they've seen the new Star Wars movies and all of that. And they asked me if the dinosaurs in this movie were real. Incredible. Because they're, you know, it's incredible. they're puppets, right? <laughs> yeah. Like they built them. They're puppets for the most part with like, and I had to tell them like, there's actually a person in that T-Rex mm-hmm. moving it around a little bit. And they were just amazed. And it holds up so well like it that. really does. I watched it the other night with Bob and a friend and we were having the same conversation, which I feel like we have every time Jurassic Park is on TV or we're all hanging out and we decide to watch it or like a few years ago like Amanda you and I went to see it for Mm -hmm. I think the 20th anniversary um, at a local theater and it just continues to look 
great. great. I think that's yeah. It just looks great. It's like you. It they sell the whole thing, mm. and for a movie that's so much about science and technology, and that you know took immense technology and work to make those dinosaurs, like it has. It's just aged really, really well. And I think that point about like it's this is functionally like a clean, safe movie to take your kids to if you're not concerned about like blood and guts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like the peril is really high. Mm-hmm. Um, but the like, are they going to learn something that changes their worldview or makes them into you know people whose ethics are different than they were before this movie um like the risk of that is very low and even for as scary as it is sort of the jump scare there's a t-rex sort of stuff it's not gory really like my kids are susceptible Mm -mm. to gore and there's really the t-rex eating the gallimimus in the open field is really the goriest part like even uh wayne knight uh i guess is uh, nedry getting killed by Dilophosaurus. Like, it's it's pretty bloodless it's on the whole. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The the descriptions in the book, I was oh surprised how, uh, like, how descriptive they were about all of those. There's copies eating babies, he, Rebecca Shinsky. I mean, it's yeah, a completely, like, I, it's a I, horror I, book. I it's horror. Like, I wrote, like, OMG yeah. across the page when Nedry dies in the book because the thing, like, there's this description of the, um, whichever dinosaur, forgive me. The Dilophosaurus. Um, yeah, the Dilophosaurus that shoots him with the poison. And then it's, like, chewing from the inside of his mouth. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> it's just eating his face. All right. mm-hmm. And it, it sounds like we're, we're verging on the book to movie kind of stuff. Let's back up a minute and talk about Michael Crichton, the book, Spielberg, kind of the context out of which we came out of this. I mean... You guys were DMing a little bit about Crichton and learning things about him. I think, so maybe let's start there, because I was older, and so I had read some of the other books and seen some of the other movies. It's hard to remember now that Crichton was the business in 1990, before this, mm-hmm. right? Like, he was directing in 1992. Before this movie came out, he was on people's uh, list of 50 most attractive people in Hollywood, a, a fine-looking fella, and, and, a, and I almost <laughs> texted you a, 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 a publicity photo of him. Rebecca with a, with the caption <laughs> Robert Langdon question mark. Um, I, I have thoughts about yeah, this. Yeah, so um, <laughs> he went to Harvard and trained to be a doctor. Switched to really always wanted to be a writer, but did some like Spock math about how many doctors there were and how many professional writers there were. It's like I guess I better be a doctor. Never really left. It's got a drama. A drama strain came out in 1969, which sounds like it's a thousand years ago, mm. but it wasn't that long mm-hmm. ago in 1990, and so. Um, he got to start as a director, made a lot of money, sold a lot of movies, had a relationship with Steven Spielberg that predated Jurassic Park. Uh, he at, in 1995, this is you know they talk about the EGOT in 1995. Crichton had the number one book in America, the number one TV show in America, and the number one movie in America in the same week. Hasn't been done by anyone since. Hard to, I don't think, I think people would be surprised about what a figure Crichton was. As you guys were doing your Googling, what surprised you or what did you and didn't know about Crichton? You know, 13 of the 18 novels were adapted for film, and that's just a huge percentage. Yeah. That's like King. That's like a higher ratio than King, I think, if you did the math. Yeah. Maybe not at this point, but yeah. (laughs) It's a huge, it's just a huge percentage. All of the books, like, did well. Um, it doesn't seem like he really had a stinker. And I was Googling, trying to find specifically sales numbers about Jurassic Park, just the book alone. And the closest thing that I had found was from 1999, a piece in Publishers Weekly about how at that point it had been out, the book had been out for nine years, and it had sold more than 12 million copies in the U.S. Mm. alone, mm. Um, which really incredible. His books have sold 200 million copies worldwide. Um at this point, I have to think that a majority of those are Jurassic Park, but that's a, it's a deep and varied backlist. 
who knows. Um, and a piece I found from 2017 was estimating that the whole Jurassic Park empire books and film and presumably other merch had made $3.5 billion. Mm. Wow. Just truly bonkers. I do also just want to make sure we come back to the Robert Langdon comparison <laughs> later because I do have thoughts about yes, that. Yes, we, we can. Um, what what edition of the book did you get? Did you do an ebook or what did you pick up? Rebecca? Oh, I got a mass market paperback, the 25th anniversary. That's what I have too. So you have the same... Uh, author photo at the back that I did too. I, mm-hmm. I, I, mm-hmm. You would have no well-known. <laughs> Spend some time looking at that photo. Amanda, anything else on Crichton himself or sort of the lead up to, to the to the book that's struck out to you as being interesting, fascinating, worth talking about from it? I have a first edition. I just have to say that. Ooh. Did you did you hand bind it yourself? <laughs> it's actually bound in T-Rex skin. I don't know if you know. <laughs> uh, um, I put it in our, in our Slack channel, but the thing that I found interesting when I was poking around at his biography was that he created ER, the TV show. I guess you guys just... are younger enough than me that that's something you didn't know because that started in 95. So you were just yeah, I never we, and we didn't have cable when mm. I was a kid. Mm. So like I, I ER was not part of my life at all. But I know what it is. Mm. You know, it's like the 90s version, the 90s medical version of 24. Like I know, you know, yeah. and and it just makes so much sense to me. Like, that's exactly his writing style. He's so good at that. Um, engrossing kind of content. I hate Mm -hmm. using the word content for this kind of stuff, but that's exactly what it is. And I I also have thoughts about that specific thing having to do with like Robert Langdon and all of that. But (laughs) it fascinates me, this thing where people can have really successful careers in really difficult, high-powered areas like medicine and then write these Mm -hmm. just bonkers good books. You see it all the time in romance where these like really Mm -hmm. high-powered lawyers and Supreme Court um, clerks write these really super successful romance series and that's amazing and it's i'm noticing it more and more in medicine also where Mm. doctors are coming over to write these really commercial just like great novels and the fact that there are people out there who are that talented is like ah (laughs) yeah and and And, and who are you critically well received as well that came that really stuck out to me googling about Crichton was that these weren't just these are not just summer popcorn books to people and that's a I think a big differential between Michael Crichton and Dan Brown is that Mm -hmm. Michael Crichton was getting like rave reviews from the Washington Post and that these were hugely commercially successful but also they are like the craft in these books as Amanda was saying is really incredible Oh, he's it's, so good. He translated a lot of his sort of medical school work ethic to his own writing work ethic. The, several interesting interviews I read with him bemoaned, and even his editor, Robert Gottlieb, who edited him um, for a lot of his career, said, you know, he's not a great writer, but he's a great storyteller. And I had mm. my pen ready for mo- while I was reading the book to highlight lines, and I just didn't. I, it wasn't trying to. There wasn't a single line that stuck out to me. And again, some of it was the cultural enmeshment with the movie, and it was I was a little bit having sort of like you know, kind of memory vertigo about what is in what and is this something that's... But there are, on the level of the line, I mean, again, it doesn't really matter, but he worked his tail off and he he published a lot. And even he wrote these novels, these kind of pulpy novels under pseudonyms when he was in medical school and he was always trying to do this thing. The particular history of this book, I think, is interesting that it's later in his career. Um, you know, he has a lot that's out there. Dramatistine, I've read all the Crichton I did shortly after I read Jurassic Park. And... I don't love any of them. I think Adrama Strain is probably the next best one. Some of it mm-hmm. is because of its earliness, but it's 1969. And the thriller part of science fiction is something we really hadn't seen before. A lot of people compare this to uh, Frankenstein, right? It makes sense, Jurassic Park. It's There's some similar kind of things. You're making life out of things that aren't alive and you're messing with the f- nature and whatever. But Frankenstein is not a thriller. It's interesting and it's kind of page turnery, but it's more meditative. 
Jurassic Park, Adrenaline Strain, you're ripping through these like you're ripping through a mystery or like you're ripping through um, uh, a Lee Child book or a, a James Patterson kind of book. And yet there's it's the density of ideas is interesting and sort of the pop mm-hmm. culture stuff is really fascinating I, too. I don't agree with you about the line, like line by line. Okay, that, that's because good. What, what do you have? Or tell me about Spielberg that. took, like there are lines that mm-hmm. are taken directly out of the book that Spielberg kept oh, in the yes, screenplay. Oh, yes, 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 yes. But I, I, I'm looking for a sentence. And that's why I said the enmeshments. Like, are, are these, do I remember them because of the movie or because they're good? Like, I'm disarmed by my familiarity and closeness to oh. it. <laughs> uh, I think it's a distinction between art and craft for me yeah. that I think Crichton is great at the craft but like the sentences I had that same response Jeff like the sentences aren't like beautiful Mm -hmm. in a striking way or in a like literary art kind of way to me but I did notice that like some of the lines that I have loved from the movie for as long as I've been aware of movies are things that came out of the text and I was really delighted that like oh the oh life finds a way is a Michael Crichton invention Mm -hmm. and the whole moment with the um water drop on Ellie's hand as a demonstration about chaos theory is a Michael Crichton invention and the good joke about how do you know what sex the dinosaurs are do they go out and look up their skirts <laughs> right. is like is, is straight from the book but I, I think he's a great technician and the craft is really strong. Um, this particular book he started writing he, he originally started writing as a screenplay in 1983 and the idea was similar it's like Basically, a graduate's or not similar, but the the central conceit of cloning di- or making dinosaurs out of found reconstructed DNA was similar. Um, he started writing it as a screenplay initially, and the pro- the main the main point of view was from a child's point of view. And apparently, Spielberg was on his early you know his trusted brain trusted people he sent drafts to, and everyone hated it, even though Spielberg <laughs> immediately optioned it uh, even before the thing was final. And the move to make it really for adults, like the people reading it, basically the feedback that he got eventually was write this for me, not for kids, which mm. I thought was a really interesting insight because we do think of dinosaurs as really a developmental stage for kids that you go through between the ages sort of four and 10 and then you don't come back to later. And this tapped into, I think it taps into a lot of things, but the element of sort of subliminal childhood wonder that's going on in this book because it's dinosaurs, because it's movies, because there are kids in it, is really strong. And I think that move was particularly interesting. I also want to look at, just shout out the flexes Crichton had, was able to do at this time. He demanded not just the standard percent of the budget that you get for adapting a film, generally like Andy Weir said when he was on Reading Lives a Million Years Ago, that the standard is to two, you get 2% of the production budget as the novelist. He wanted that plus just a straight up $1.5 million cash homie payment that along, went along with <laughs> yes. it, plus 500 grand to adapt the book into the screenplay. He and David Coep um, co-wrote the screenplay. And this is another one of those situations where the screenplay is a work of art in itself. I don't know much about mm-hmm. the screenplay's art, but go, mm-hmm. like we did with Hunt, I think, Amanda, we should talk about, the translation from the book to the movie is sort of staggering amazing. And sometimes I, maybe it's just the choices they made just worked. Maybe they knew what they were doing. But my God, is it a beautiful screenplay of concision and it's on rails and the character stuff is slight but really works it, it's really amazing so i don't know how much of that was Crichton in club Crichton often got criticized for his writing of interpersonal relationships um and the guy was married five times so you got to wonder <laughs> um, <laughs> you know how great he was at well, them at all so I, i'm not sure but the you know. it's it's one of those things that you do wonder about <laughs> I have a line in my notes. I think that uh, I'm just going to go to the Robert Langdon stuff because this is a nice opening in the way that Robert Langdon, we are pretty confident is an avatar for Dan Brown of like a wish fulfillment situation. Mm. I really deeply need to believe that Ian Malcolm is the 
Michael Crichton avatar in this book and the like I'm always on the lookout for a future yes. ex Mrs. Malcolm seems pretty like that makes this you're strengthening my argument here that Crichton was married five times five times five times and uh well look at and w- let's talk about that cover that jacket picture he's wearing the Malcolm get up sans like mm-hmm. blue blockers or whatever mm-hmm. those sunglasses are that he's wearing which is also the Langdon outfit like I, I've got you know whoever wants to write the academic paper about this sort of all in black Langdon Malcolm Brown like what is this figure I I need some I need some deep dive on that they're so the characters are so similar in that like deeply nerdy investment in their subject matter and they want to tell everyone about it and spout all the things I think Crichton edits himself better um, or more effectively than Dan Brown does in holding back like some of the things that he's learned in his research this these books or Jurassic Park felt like much less of a research dump to me than sometimes Dan Brown does but I think like functionally Ian Malcolm is Robert Langdon who like has a couple good sex moves Mm. yeah yeah I I I does feel like um He's uh, Robert Langdon that went to a few Grateful Dead concerts, or maybe Led Zeppelin concerts. <laughs> well, he's much or... younger. Is he's he? Only, he's only thirty-five in the book. Well, how old was Langdon in? I feel like Langdon's in his forties. Then because he's the, like a he's mm. a professor. Easy, easy, Amanda, just easy. easy. <laughs> Look, uh, let's go to the book. Um, any? Oh, I guess anything else about the the setup? The, I guess the other thing as we're looking at the the protogenitor of the book and the movie, going to look at Spielberg as the director. I mean Spielberg one of the great, maybe the great yeah. visual storytellers of America, maybe of all time. I think it's important that Spielberg had made Jaws before. And mm-hmm. one of the great things about Jaws was, A, it gave us John Williams, that was his first big score. But also the the shark in Jaws apparently didn't work like he wanted it to, and it looked bad, mm-hmm. so he just didn't show it that much. And it turns out that that was the right move, because half the fun is where's the shark, what's it going to look like, what's it going to do? And a lot of that, I think, Spielberg brought to Jurassic Park is you don't have to show too much dinosaur until it's really time. Like, you get a lot more looking at dinosaurs in the book than you do in the movie until it's really blood time. You get, you know, mm-hmm. the great, you know, the great scene when they come over the, the, the ridge in the Jeep. But after that, it's you're kind of looking at sick trikes laying there and you're not looking at anything else. But in the book, you're getting a lot of previews like you see the T-Rex and you see the Velociraptors and you, you see the Compies and you see the before they're actually terrifying. So I just think that's a through line to connect to something Jaws, um, Spielberg learned about Jaws about really r- making a horror film and the limitations, and that constraints can be a strength when it comes to this sort of thing. So that was the only other note I had mm-hmm. there. Amanda, uh, why don't you tell us about the virtues of the book? What, what are the virtues of the book? I think probably you more than Rebecca and I have an experience of it that is at least somewhat separated from the movie. It is, I think, one of the best examples that I've experienced as a reader of really masterful, like, authorial authority, which is a goofy phrase. (laughs) But I know I recognize that. But Crichton is doing this just amazing thing where he's ushering you through, like, horrifying danger, but you never feel like anything bad is actually going to happen, even though characters who don't actually die in the movie do die in the mm-hmm. book and like characters you become really attached to. Um, and even the kids, like the first time I read the book, I remember thinking like, oh, this might be the first time I've read an adult book where like a kid dies because mm-hmm. that hadn't happened to me before. But I, I didn't feel like he was going to take me a place that was unnecessary as an author. And there's like, I think the first, one of the first deaths on the page of a major character is Nedry yep. um, when he gets eaten by the, the Dilophosaur. Mm-hmm. And the, the closing line of that chapter of like, 
his last thought was that it would just be over quickly mm-hmm. is just so like it's so quiet and you mm-hmm. you can tell that Crichton like has you you know like he's gonna usher you past this scene into some new emotional experience and it just feels very safe even though you are in this horrifying hellscape mm-hmm. where everyone is dying that's so <laughs> and I think that's what makes it such a yeah. great he's so great at the cliffhanger in that same it's, way that Dan Brown is but it yeah, feels it, more controlled it's it's kind of the antithesis to like the Nicholas Sparks work with emotions right Mm -hmm. where like when you're reading something like that you're so aware that you're being emotionally manipulated and that the author (laughs) is aware that they're manipulating your emotions and Crichton does it so well that you're like yes please manipulate my emotions but I trust you to do it and also I think your phrase that nothing will be unnecessary is Mm -hmm. so perfect there like there's got there's not going to be any like torture porn happening in on the Michael Crichton page. Like you see the painful thing, but it serves a purpose and then you move along and then there's something else that happens. Like he trusts you. He trusts readers more than I think Mm -hmm. a lot of authors of thrillers can. Mm. Um, Especially when it comes to these big ethical questions that he's asking about things that are very technical and specific and scientific. He explains them in ways that don't make you feel stupid. And then he gives you emotional scenes that don't make you feel like you're being told how to feel. Mm. Like he knows how you're going to feel because he's brought you there, but you don't feel led. Um, And then, you know, he trusts the reader to understand the point that he's making without beating you over the head with it. It's hard to remember, too, that um, at this moment, the idea that dinosaurs were pretty much a direct ancestor of birds was a new idea and kind of radical mm-hmm. for its time. Um, and, you know, f- especially in 1983, when he started messing around with the idea of like DNA might make dinosaurs possible. We know things in, ni- in 1983, you're only looking at, I mean, it's, it's, it's so wild to think about now you're only 29 years away from Watson and Crick in 1954. Like it wasn't mm-hmm. that long of an idea. And it's really the first great, I think, mainstream cultural deployment of DNA. There's actually a lot of things I think is the first great mainstream cultural deployment of. I think the idea of computer hacking, it's like the first real, you get these scenes of people on computers doing stuff that's important to the plot of the movie. I don't remember that mm-hmm. happening before. We haven't even talked about the CGI quality of the whole thing. Or I guess, Amanda, <laughs> you did. Amanda said, well, you can't tell, which is sort of the beauty of it. The density, the a, a Dan Brownian, I guess Brown is a Crichtonian density of information <laughs> That's its own. It's its own pleasure. It's its own pleasure in a, in a, yeah, in a way, yeah. um, which is remarkable to to do. Um, all yeah, right, supercomputers. I remember. Thinking. Yeah, the cray, like, three cray yeah, computers, the, and all that stuff. All the stuff at the beginning of the book where he's laying out like what bioengineering is now yeah. in in 1989 when he's writing the book and then what they think bioengineering is going to do. Like it's interesting to be here 25 years later, seeing all of the predictions that didn't come yeah. out that, you know, of that, that it has not become this thing that um, people anticipated at the time of that discovery, what, like what science was going to be doing and what, how business would be using mm-hmm. science. Like certainly a, a lot of money is made and a lot of money is on the line now um, around science and around ways that like engineering different things might change our lives and change the future but it's not this it's not like you know present in the way that i think Crichton was anticipating it would be when he wrote the book about like it's it's going to be dinosaurs and then it's going to be these other things and then you're going to be able to engineer your baby or like you know whatever and mm-hmm. um, that just has not shaken out the way that um the way he was predicting it would then and like one of the many things that makes it a bummer that 
he died when he died is it would have been so fascinating to get Mike, Michael Crichton interviews now and Michael Crichton interviews in another 10 years uh, as science continues to move about like, you know, if you were going to write Jurassic Park now, mm. how would you frame it? I think would be just really interesting. I was thinking, and I have to wonder how much of that is because of Jurassic Park. Like, I feel mm, like this book mm. turned popular opinion about genetic tinkering in a lot of ways that maybe would not have happened if he had never written it. Like, if we didn't get Jurassic Park, yeah. would we have this pop culture conscious, like, I don't know. That's about, a great yeah, question. Like, yeah, that Malcolm, I think this goes to my theory about Malcolm as the Michael Crichton avatar in the story. Like, he's so clear about what the ethical concerns are. Like, not just what's going to happen with these dinosaurs and that this complex system is going to run itself, but ethically why this is a bad idea and the speech he gives about scientific power as inherited wealth mm. and not having respect for it and like even the bit about like science hasn't actually advanced us because women are still doing the same amount of housework that they've been doing since the 1930s um, which happens in the book I was like okay like it's very clear that Crichton is concerned about this kind of scientific ability or these technologies being used in a way that is damaging and that people have people who have a profit incentive have either not foreseen that it will be dangerous or they're ignoring because the profit incentive is so high. And I hadn't considered that this would have shaped the cultural conversation around those kinds of ethics. But I think it's like, I think that's totally possible. Mm -hmm. It wasn't too long after um, that sort of the cloning sheep Dolly in China was oh, a yeah, big cultural yeah. story. And I have to believe that the reaction to that was at least in some part influenced by the specter of Jurassic Park. Now, here's the, I don't, but in which way? Like, did Jurassic Park make cloning seem cooler or more dangerous? Because it's only through Malcolm that we get a sense that this is a bad idea. Like, the, it's, let's be honest, freaking cool to clone a dinosaur. It, it just <laughs> is, right? It's like, it's yeah. just a cool yeah. idea. And there's a, a lot of layering that happens on top of that being a cool idea. You know, the idea of automation, Hammond's conviction that he can control it. Uh, Dr. Wu's sort of obtuseness or at least single-mindedness on just solving the problem in, in front of him. So there's these interlocking jigsaw pieces, pieces that make the whole thing, I guess, a cautionary tale about using science just because you can um, that I don't know. I'm not actually sure that describes the real world, but it certainly describes the story. And it, it puts bounds around the story. And it's so beautifully interlocking between the amber and the cloning. Like, as a layperson, even in 15, at 15, I was like, this all seems plausible. Like, I don't understand the science, but, like, it seems plausible. Mm -hmm. And then, then therefore, the, the stakes seem plausible, and therefore, the philosophical questions seem plausible. Now, we know that cloning is a lot harder, and there's genetic uses that maybe are scarier than cloning dinosaurs, but also gene therapy or cancer treatments and communicable diseases and all sorts of, like, you know, basically being able to create vaccines on the fly by manipulating genetic code like is very exciting do the questions still exist there or is it because t-rexes are big and scary that chaos <laughs> I, I don't know like I, I was left wondering like what am i supposed to do with my 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 moral hands about this uh <laughs> i'm not sure yet when we talk about like what does the book do better i think the book certainly does the like ethical and moral complexity better mm -hmm. than the movie does because you get more time, yeah. you get a lot more of the conversation between, especially between Malcolm and Hammond and Hammond as this sort of insistently and almost intentionally like naive or unknowing yeah. character. Like man child. Yeah. Yeah. So much more present on the page than it is on the film of like in the book, he's kind of a doty uncle who's like 
you know, this is the thing he wants to do and won't the children be delighted and we have to fix it. But it's really like brought home over and over in the book of like, he's refusing yeah. to see that this could in any way be dangerous or bad. And so Malcolm has to repeatedly argue against that. And it happens like from the opening of the book, basically all the way through to the end um, about like what's going on here. I think if as if as many people had read this book as have seen the movie, we could certainly hang something on like our our conversations about ethics and morality with cloning, especially and with do you use science just because you can um, could be hung on this. It's it's so so present there. Amanda, what do you miss from the book in the movie the most? I'm good. I mean, I'm going to spoil. That's fine. You, you, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, You're Hammond warned. Dinosaur dying. roar. Yeah. <laughs> Hammond dying, I think, should have been in the movie. Say more about that. Um, he's annoying, and I don't like him, and I want to see him get eaten. No. You don't like him um, in the movie. You don't. You like. You don't like him in the movie either. I think that he gets no. He faces no consequences yeah. in mm. the movie, other than he doesn't get to become he doesn't get to have more billions of dollars (laughs) like he's already a billionaire when the movie opens and then he uses his money to try to fund this ridiculous experiment that fails and then at the end of the movie he's on the helicopter going home and it's just kind of like well and you know there are sequels and blah 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 whatever but all of even in those sequels it's the same thing like he's just kind of having to mop up after himself or paying Mm. other people to mop up after himself but he faces no real um consequences at all uh and i think that I don't. I think it should be really personally satisfying <laughs> yeah. um, to see him get eaten by some compies. Like I don't want to, you know, whatever. He's an old man, and it's kind of an upsetting scene. But also, I can see that. I, I can see. Yeah. I, I was thinking about the resolution of the book versus the the movie, and you know, the cl- the, the safe climax in the movie is Grant with the kids in his arms. Like one of the narrative mm-hmm. through lines is Grant moving from being, I guess, a confirmed. Not bachelor, I guess, but um, not having kids, not being interested in kids, to basically being domesticated as you know a father figure <laughs> to them, and the kids are safe and happy. If Hammond dies, they're on that helicopter with a much different attitude, right? Like their grandfather mm-hmm. just got eaten by dinosaurs. So I kind of agree with you. No, I certainly agree with you that Hammond's lack of consequences does something weird to the morality kind of question the ambival- you know the ambivalence or mm-hmm. the consequence that Malcolm does, but it. In the movie, it radically changes those last shots on the helicopter looking at pelicans mm-hmm. and Grant smiling at Laura Dern. I think that's that's my sense of it. Like, well, that's one of my quibbles. I hate, like, now that I've read the book and seen that these stories are different, I hate what they do with Grant in the film of this, like, mm. gradual softening towards maybe he does want kids, like, as a just on the principle that it should be fine to not want them. And also that I think like while trapped in peril with these two children and dinosaurs that might eat them, he was going to protect those kids, whether he liked them or not. Like Mm -hmm. the story, like there's a obviously a moral imperative there to take care of these two kids. And he could have been there and protected them. And in the book, he interacts with them and does all the, the like same kinds of things that he can do. And, you know, they're in like that barn or the, like wherever there's the hay in the book. And they they spend the first night and he's caring for them. But this like the arc of he's going like through this experience, he becomes a person who like maybe he's going to have kids and maybe he and Ellie are going to have kids. And that there's this, I think, implied statement there that it's morally better. Like now that he has done this and he will be morally better and he will have kids or he'll be open to it. Um, 
like this is a personal axe I have to grind about cultural messaging about people who intentionally don't have children. But I just I thought it was unnecessary. Like it's a good emotional move for the movie to make. But I didn't like that they did it. I don't love that they put him and Ellie together at all in in the in the movie hmm. because they're not in the book. In the book, she's his student. Um, she's much younger than he is, and she's engaged to like a doctor in Chicago. Like they have no romantic involvement in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that you know a movie needs to have whatever. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. But they're they're. I just find them a little obnoxious. Like there there was no reason that the only female character in the movie has to have a romantic entanglement with someone, especially someone who is an authority figure over her. That bothers me. I mean, he's twenty yeah, years old. Very... I mean. Yeah, it's a very Dan Brown, Girl Friday, swinging ponytail, sidekick kind of move. And it's Mm -hmm. so slight, like, I'm not even sure that I picked up too much before we were actually told that Malcolm asks, are you and Dr. Sattler Mm -hmm. a thing? And he says, yes. Like, in the early scenes, it's, I guess, plausible, deniable, though, when I looked at, when I watched it the other day, like, they both touch each other's asses within, like, the first six minutes, so I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just wasn't picking up on that earlier, or maybe it's the big TVs where I used to watch on these 19-inch, like, <laughs> cathode ray tubes, you don't see enough detail. I mean, from the movie-making point of view, it makes sense. I like their chemistry, but it doesn't have to be romantic. Like, they have similar chemistry as as co- uh, colleagues uh, mm-hmm. as much as anything, and it doesn't really affect the book, the, the experience yeah, of the movie it's... that much. Like, it doesn't matter. They, like you no. said, she, she, they care about each other anyway. They don't have to be romantically whatever. They, it's not even yeah. clear at the beginning. And they talk to each other in these really stiff, arch ways. There's, And I don't know if the, the Grant thing with his arms around the kids at the end has really sort of moved to a paternal or just a gradual softening because he's very harsh with the kid at the beginning with the Velociraptor mm-hmm. thing. Like some of it might just be a softening that borders on paternal. But yeah... You could have everything you like about those relationships without going all the way in either direction. I think I agree. With that. Yeah, I wish that I, I'm glad that the movie found a way to give Ellie more to yeah. do. Like she mm-hmm. she gets to do more in the movie. She gets some of the lines that Malcolm has in the mm-hmm. book. She gets to deliver those in a big like she gets to yell at Hammond and have that moment. I, I do wish that they had just remained colleagues. And I think this is just a thing we don't see often enough in media at all is just like truly like functional platonic relationships between men mm-hmm. and women. Um, I think Jeff, I think we talked about it when Lab Girl yeah. was yeah. out and how that relationship that Hope Jaren has with I can't remember the guys. It's one of her labs, long. lab techs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, her like long-term lab assistant that they have this just long-term like professional collaboration and deep friendship and it's so uncommon to see that that like in a 2020 remake of Jurassic Park I want Grant and Ellie mm. to just like to be colleagues and to be equals and to not hear um, any of the male characters talk about her shorts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the movie let, actually let's take a quick sponsor break. We'll come back to the stuff the movie does better. Okay, um, I, I have a lot to say about what I think the screenplay does better, um, but do you guys want to lead off? What do you guys have in your bag of tricks to talk about the movie doing better? I feel like the oh. sense of wonder. Like, uh, for me, the book did better with peril. Like, there's just so much more of it right up front because the island is in much worse shape mm. in the book um things are just rough from the start so the peril felt higher to me but the like the sense of wonder is so much easier to tap into when you're actually looking at the mm. dinosaurs you can't do it on the page you just can't 
yeah. can't do the thing the movie does on the screen. That's why it's, you know, the, I mean, if you ask me to save 10 of my favorite scenes in movies, it's coming over the ridge in the Jeep and the sunglasses and turning her head. Yes. Watching. I mean, it's, it's, just, yeah. it's incredible stuff. It's just incredible stuff. Uh, Amanda, is there anything that jumps out to you as, as the movie making an improvement on the book? I think that the way that the children are portrayed in the movie is not more realistic, but is more pleasant to experience. Mm. Because mm. Lex, especially in the book, is the most freaking annoying little yeah. piece of crap brat. It's tough. Lex is a <laughs> tough hang in to the be, book. She needs to be parented mm-hmm. in ways that I don't think I can talk about <laughs> publicly. But she is the worst. And her relationship with Tim and the... The, you know, the divorce that's happening in the background of their story and the way that it makes them act towards each other. It's just it's just very obnoxious, you know, and it makes sense in what he's doing in the book um, and the way that they're that influences how they interact with the danger that they're in. Mm-hmm. But the two of them in the movie are so much more competent and less irritating, um, especially Lex, who gets to be the older. I think she's younger than Tim mm-hmm. in the book. That took me a little movie, while to gets... straighten out because the weight of the yeah. movie says, oh, it's like, oh, Lex is yeah. younger here. It's like, why is Dr. Grant picking up Lex and care? Oh, she's young. I was like, geez, I was yeah, so dumb she's with like, that. A lot and younger. Like, if anything, Tim is the more annoying one in the movie. Mm-hmm. And in the book, I, th- I think he comes off better in the book where he is like competent and intelligent and we get to spend time kind of in his head in the Mm -hmm. book and know like how excited he is and all of the things that he's thinking about. But I'm also in the same line as being glad that Ellie gets to do things on screen. I was glad that they flipped the bit for the film and let Lex be the one who who manages to hack into the computer and like save the day with turning the power grid back on. This is a Unix system. System. I know this. (laughs) I want to know like what happened in the three years between the book coming out and the movie coming out that made it occur to Michael Crichton and whoever like and Spielberg and everybody working on the movie with him of like, oh, the, you know, the women really don't get to do much in the book and we need to That's do that, that differently on screen. Point. That's a great mm-hmm. point because I, I, I was going to add, this is one of my notes to ask you, go ahead. So the pro, I don't even the proto-feminism of the movie of like you, Dern getting some stuff, you know, the, and women take over the earth and we need to talk about sexism and was it um, cry- survival, survival situations. situations? Like, so they're like, no, I don't know that it's handled particularly well, but it's there. There's a knowledge of it that's not in the book at all, to my knowledge. I think. I, yeah, I, like, I was there a woman writer on this staff somewhere who was like, "Hey, you guys." <laughs> yeah. Well, Lex's <laughs> one character note in the book is that she's carrying a baseball around all the time. Let's play pick. Mm-hmm. She like asked the lawyer to play, play catch pickle. in the middle of the dinosaur paddock. Like that wouldn't scan at all in the movie. Maybe it just seemed absurd. Right. I don't. I don't know. But you're right. I hadn't thought about. It was there some antecedent to make that change? Uh, whose script note was that? I'd, I'd love to know. Maybe it's a Carrie Fisher ghostwriter. There's all these things of these stories of Carrie Fisher mm. getting notes like this uh, in movies. Um, I guess for mine, Amanda may not like to hear this, but the second half of the book is a narrative mess. You don't know where you are. There's too many characters. There's too many locations. It, where is everyone? What's what needs to get turned on? Where? And it's just insanely complicated. And then you get sort of a scurrying of the Shire moment where we've we've turned all the power back on, but now we have to go out to the Velociraptor next and count the eggs. I'm like, no, do not count the eggs. Get the hell out of there. Nuke the just whole thing. It. Just firebomb it. We'll figure it out later. It, just assume some are missing. Just I, I was like, I was so I was like, Doctor Grant, like. Amanda and I talk about competence porn. Like Ramius and Grant are like mm-hmm. cut from the same like aspirational competence cloth. Um, and I'm like, mm-hmm. Marco Ramius would never go count raptors. <laughs> he would go fishing. He likes fishing. <laughs> I was very upset about. He that would nuke it from the ocean. He would nuke <laughs> it from the ocean. 
So I, that that whole part, the back, <laughs> the the back half is just so much simpler. And some of it is, you get the visual cues and the production of the move. The production design is so good in the movie that you know where you are. Like it makes sense to you what's going on in yeah. a way. I just don't think is. Maybe it's not possible in the book. Maybe there's too many characters, but like. At one point, you have people in like seven different places, and one dies here, but someone's trying to turn this thing off, and there's raptors. How many raptors are there? Where are they? What are they biting through at the moment? It's like, I was completely lost, and maybe that's my fault, but Crichton is so good in other times. I was like, this is just scale it down, and you know what? The movie (laughs) scaled it down, and we knew exactly what was happening. You know, I hadn't thought about that, but I am now realizing that I think without the movie playing in my head as I was reading the book, I would have yeah. struggled a lot more with who was where and what was going on, especially in, in the second half. Yeah. Um, Amanda, is that offensive to your sensibilities or is, is there some partial merit at least to what I'm saying there? I mean, when I was nine and I read it, I had no trouble with it. So I don't really understand <laughs> what you're talking about. <laughs> Maybe it's because you yeah, typed I mean, it out verbatim. You, That's easier to understand. You absorb it in a different way. When I you think that I probably it. just had anchor moments mm-hmm. in when I was reading it. Like there, I, I distinctly remember the scene when Malcolm is lying on a bed and, and there's a raptor trying to gnaw through the safety mm-hmm. bars above his window. Yeah. And he's just staring at it, making jokes. Um, and then the, the power comes back on. And it gets like shocked and runs off. Like there's moments like that from reading the second half that I remember that I don't know if I just like latched onto the stuff that I thought was interesting and then forgot about everything else that was happening. Um, yeah. But that's entirely possible. It's an, and it's just much simpler. There's fewer dinosaurs like the beginning. Like it's 150 pages before you start the tour in the book. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that is long. The book is long. That's something I, I was telling Sharifa and Vanessa yesterday. I was like, this is a 450 page book. Like it's a lot of book and there's a lot of detail and everything in there. But you get a lot of mailing of specimens back and forth at the beginning. I was like, oh my God, Jesus. All right, <laughs> we get it. It's a dinosaur. We know. Like, it's on the cover. Like, there, there's also, it's like the blurb says they clone dinosaurs. We know it's not a basilisk. We just do. So I don't know. Maybe. Oh, I love that stuff so much, though. Yeah. I, it was such I a puzzle. It too. Yeah. It, and the, like, I, there's a spot in my book where I wrote, like, this whole thing is just an exercise in confirmation bias. Yeah. Like, the first 150 <laughs> pages, especially, are just people who don't think that it could possibly be a dinosaur finding reasons to insist that it couldn't possibly be a dinosaur and then backing it up with the right. evidence that's available to them. And you see that as they get into the park also, and especially as Malcolm and Grant start doing their thing about, like, these are their breeding and there are more and people are, you know, everyone else is resistant to all that evidence mm-hmm. but it's so much more there's just so much more of it in the book but I kind of loved that and like I loved the opening frame of the book that we already know this dinosaur has gotten off the island and like there's real peril from the start there of like the movie starts with peril because you watch a man get eaten mm-hmm. um but that the book starts with the peril of the little girl getting hurt and also the implication that like dinosaurs are off the island. They're running through um, and killing other babies. This isn't the only one. And like now the stakes are really high from the start about what's going on. I, I appreciated that, you know, fewer than 150 pages would have been fine. I was the kids knew I was reading the book after we watched the movie. and They loved the movie, too. It's like, would you read the book to us? I'm like, OK, sure. Mm. I may have skipped over the compies eating the baby out of the crib. I may have. <laughs> I mean, that is a t- that's, that's tough. And also, whatever happens to those, we haven't come back to, like, there's all these dinosaurs now in the wild. It's, it's impossible. I mean, in our day of IP, 
the movie gets made now, even if it's just as good, they certainly have a stinger with like a compy like walking into a Dairy Queen in Costa Rica or something like that. Because like, <laughs> mm-hmm. de- the movie is really good about tying a bow on it, right? Like the the island, there's, we know there's dinosaurs there, but it's sort of contained. The pelican is sort of a symbol like there's a continuity and we understand that we look at the world a little bit differently. But now you really are setting up a movie franchise in a way that mm-hmm. this movie really doesn't give you any... You have yeah. to, part of the problem with the second movie is you kind of have to invent a reason to go back and all these things go, going on there. Um, let's take another break and let's talk about casting because, I mean, we could spend seven hours on Goldblum alone, but we probably don't want <laughs> to do that. Um, in looking at this again, did you do Googling about casting? Did any of you guys Google any of this casting stuff? I didn't go down the rabbit hole of like the casting rumors because I didn't want to know. I feel like this movie is perfectly cast. Amanda, you know who they yeah, wanted. You know who they wanted for Grant. You know, you know from no. Hunt for Red October. You can figure it out. It's night. It's an early '90s in action movie oh. directed by Spielberg. <laughs> it's Harrison Ford. Okay, yeah, could have done it. He could have done it. Oh, he 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 could absolutely could have yeah. done it. Sam Neill. Yeah was not a house none of these people were household names like jeff goldblum was like maybe the biggest star at this point laura dern was really just getting started but goldblum had been in the fly i well, guess richard attenborough no ain't no one knew richard attenborough <laughs> who was going to see this movie in maybe no one here but yeah the, 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 okay fine but like sam jackson is just off do the right thing like wayne knight actually might be the most famous after seinfeld you know recurring role in seinfeld, seinfeld yeah. um but mm-hmm. it's a it is I don't know if that's Spielberg. I don't know if that's casting. I don't know if they their budget was already out of control. We ain't paying Harrison Ford twenty two and back end points to to be in this thing. But uh, it's great. But it is funny. Like you can totally see that's a Harrison Ford role. And I wonder. I didn't see. I read a bunch of Crichton interviews. As much as he was a director and a player in Hollywood, he probably had a sense of who he wanted. And I could see that reading the book that that's a Harrison Ford kind of role. He does that frantic, capable but also kind of interested, but also distant thing that Sam Neill... I, don't, I find myself wondering if Sam Neill's doing a Harrison Ford impersonation to some degree. <laughs> I feel like... Har- I mean, I would not be surprised if Harrison Ford felt like this role was a little too close to Indiana Jones. It is. You're, it's yeah. a great point. Yeah. That's a great point. And Chris Pratt does this role when instead of doing Indiana Jones, apparently, for some of the other stuff that comes well, later. I'm pretty sure Harrison Ford was in consideration for the Robert Langdon role, too. And mm. that, like, that's also way too close i kind of want to see harrison ford in the grant role but in the way that grants are written in the book wearing jeans and a hawaiian shirt and cowboy (laughs) boots like performatively cool in a way that sam neill doesn't quite go for here but it's it's so good like everyone is so good and like there's just no way to read ian malcolm on the page and not picture jeff goldblum like that is that's really indelible i think we have to give shout outs to bob peck as unbelievable (laughs) that has that hat the, he wears with the like, tall socks. Yeah, the socks and the boots and like the short shorts. And, and the 50-yard stare, no matter who yeah, he's looking he's at. he's so serious. Like the cl- he gets that great clever girl moment, yeah. but at the beginning when he's just yelling, shoot, ha, <laughs> it's so good. Like it's, like it's it's so good. And I don't think he gets enough love for this. He was really wonderful. Goldblum's the indispensable. It's impossible. I'm sure other people could do it and they would have done it their own way. But it had, is it the... Jeff Goldblum as cultural meme thing. Like, this is what we hang our hat on when we're talking about Jeff Goldblum, right, Amanda? Is that, is, am I right about this? Like, this is it. This is the epicenter of Goldbluminess. Yes. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. And I find, as I get older, there's some stuff I don't like about Goldblum. Like, there's some, like, 
I don't even know. It's it's on the other side of Creepsville Station stuff he's doing, like touching her hair. And I don't know, like maybe that that's me. How he and, gets super close to her face when he talks to her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And she seems she's she can handle herself. It's it's not a problem mm-hmm. in that respect. But like the licking of the lips and the in the performative ticks, I'm like, it really is beyond parody. And everything else you see him after like an Independence Day, all are shadow versions of, of Ian Malcolm. Can we say? Can we articulate the appeal, the weird appeal of Goldblum in this role? Like, what is it makes this so fun? It's his, like Hammond says it, his deplorable excess of personality. Which is in the book. That I did circle, actually. That was directly directly from the book. It is in the book. Um, But the idea that you can be both a really serious and successful academic intellectual and like a complete jackass rock star is kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that anybody except Jeff Goldblum could really embody that in such a perfect way. Because he is, like, he's exactly what I would imagine a member of the Rolling Stones being like if they had a freaking PhD in math. Like, that. Because he's nerdy, (laughs) but he's also a... He's a big guy. Like, you see him stand up. He's, like, 6'4". He's fucking ripped. Mm -hmm. He's got, like, Jerry curl in his... I'm like, I'm not sure what (laughs) that thing is. And he's wearing those glasses. Those glasses. Unbelievable stuff. It's so good. It's like... Like there's a the pop culture meme about like the nerd in high school is the guy who 20 years later is going to get all the girls. Right. And it's like Ian Malcolm got that memo early and he's living it like, oh, I could be like really smart and people will find that sexy. And he it's like it, I think the performance is kind of a caricature of itself, right. but in a way that's really fun to watch. Like, I think it I think the character behaves in ways that you're right, Jeff, are like on the wrong side of Creepsville. But Malcolm is like in on the joke mm-hmm. about it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And then the iconic and he's shot. He's also right. The iconic shot of him with the shirt open, you know, down in the bunker, like I guess thirst trapping while injured. Like I'm not even sure <laughs> what that is, but like I would love to have been in the editorial bay where like, let's keep his romance cover shot. Like I, I just was not. Pro- <laughs> it it's so unusual for the movie, right? Like he's 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 yeah. sweaty and there's light coming through, like. <laughs> It is a choice. It's, um, it's the dude version <laughs> of Lee of Princess Leia in the gold bikini. Like he doesn't want to be in that situation. He's way more unclothed yeah, than he right. should be for what's happening right now. Right, uh, danger, peril. Yeah. Also, That's apparently he's sweating and hot, and yet John Hammond keeps wanting to put blankets on him in the movie. Blanket. I don't understand that. Just, <laughs> yeah. He's like taking off his shirt, and Hammond's putting this wool blanket like, on him. Like, what do you do anyway? It's a separate question, but um, yeah, I think it also helps that Jeff Goldblum isn't like traditionally handsome. Mm. You know, like Harrison Ford in that role <sighs> with yeah. his shirt wide open while he's sweating. Like that is a straight up obvious thirst trap. But part of what makes the character a delight and the way the performance comes across as a delight is like you you're looking at Jeff Goldblum bloom and you're hearing the ian malcolm stuff and it's like why is this working yeah. <laughs> like what like i really like this and i don't understand it and that like that kind of confusion i think is pleasant too. well and malcolm preens and Goldblum preens in similar i mean of course yeah. similar because they're a character but you can imagine even in the book malcolm he's a performer and a preener and mm-hmm. he wants to demonstrate to you that he has mastery of the situation but also mastery of himself and how he looks and all the other things like that um in the rest of the cast like after Goldblum, who's indispensable for casting, in your opinion? Who's next on the... Boy, I would, I would save Goldblum as, out, as Malcolm. Who would you save next as their particular role? Samuel L. Jackson. Mm. God, he's great, isn't he? I miss this Sam that Jackson. That character. I miss yeah, this Sam Jackson. Cigarette Speak on it. Speak on it. Oh, 
It's so good. Like the, the, how he chain smokes and he he like perfectly chain smokes somehow, which is like disgusting. <laughs> but he keeps that cigarette in his mouth the whole time. And he is he never leaves the computer until he goes to the bunker to turn the TV on. But somehow he makes a character who like doesn't get up for two hours totally awesome and badass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is before this is like the year before Pulp Fiction. And I think it's the perfect time right before Sam Jackson becomes a pop culture meme himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where this is just he's in this movie. He's an actor doing a really fun thing with a character. Then like that character is not that much fun on the page in the book. But Samuel L. Jackson makes him really fun to watch and really compelling. And yeah, I think compelling is the word mm-hmm. that I want there for all those reasons that Amanda was listing. But like if Jurassic Park has comes out five years or two years even after Pulp Fiction and the like sort of entrance into our like cultural knowledge of Samuel L. Jackson as this like swaggering badass, that this is a totally different story. And you can't mm-hmm. cast him. You can't cast him there, I don't think. Yeah. Like, that resigned competence that he has, like he's like, oh, um, yeah. there's a bugs. And I think Amanda the Cigarette, there's the moment where he's, it's in his lips and he's smoking it while talking and it doesn't fall yes. out. I'm like, this is a yeah. guy who stress smokes some cigarettes. Like he knows how to stress smoke a cigarette. And that little character detail is so nice as much as I hate to have my kids watching kid uh, people smoke cigarettes in movies, but that's a, you know, a completely different situation. After that, I'm not, Laura Dern is fine. I feel like, listen, we talked about this pre-show. If this was Meg Ryan, I wouldn't be sad. <laughs> Oh my god! Oh. No. Meg Ryan doesn't have the like stones, the chutzpah. Yeah. yeah. Did you see her in Courage Under the Fire? She was great. She's great in Courage Under the Fire. But maybe that's me. Maybe okay. that's me. <laughs> um, but I does what? It, what does Laura Dern add? I should think she's great. I'm just not sure. I would. It's indispensable. Height? She's very tall. I think there's. Yeah, and like with that comes like the height and her performance. I think she has a gravitas that Meg Ryan. I don't find to have. Mm. I don't know that mm. I could believe Meg Ryan is a scientist. Is that weird? I don't know. Could I? No. She's like so perky. Ugh. Meg Ryan plays light really well. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah probably yeah. too light. Probably too light. Though, go roll back the tape on Courage Under Fire. We'll do a, we can do a special episode <laughs> based on that just, just to, to amuse me. I guess if I had to recast anything, and again, some of it is we've moved, well, we still do this stuff, but Wayne Knight is the fat, schlubby hacker that gets killed. I don't like, I don't, I don't like any of that stuff. The physical, like playing upon his size for laughs Mm -hmm. and we're okay with him getting eaten and all the food. It's just, it's not what you want. Even then, I think, I don't think it's what you want. That's a yeah. Joyce Carol Oates moment right there. Yes. Oh, Yeah, great that point. is the Joyce Carol Oates oh no great moment. Point. I think that like in a lot of ways, the book and the movie are really a product of their time. Yeah. Like in the way that the book talks about science, but also like every member of the board when they convene a member, like when they convene the board um, to discuss what they're going to do if they find out that the park is a disaster. It's just like... Good evening, gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just accepted that every member of the board is a man. All of the people who get to save the day in the stories are male, or in the book are male. The women get a little bit more to do um, in the movie. But, like, there's just sort of stuff that's on the page and on the screen that is just isn't cool culturally in 2020. Mm-hmm. Like, I think we get this movie in 2020 and we get a female hacker. Like, we get Mackenzie Davis's character from The Martian. Mackenzie Davis as- in the Sam Jackson role would make a lot of sense. Like that would make yeah, a lot of that, sense. Ooh, yeah. yeah. And you get you get Doctor yeah. Wu, but we'd have more people of color. I hope. I think people with their heads screwed mm-hmm. on straight. Some you gender swap some of the other people. Again, the Wayne Knight stuff. It's not. It's not super overt. 
you know, it could be a lot worse, but it's still not It is great. in the book, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. The book especially, like, really, I think, embraces stereotypes mm-hmm. of the time. Um, early in the book, when they find the, like, when the x-ray of the lizard gets sent to somebody in New York, it's a woman who is like, no, that looks like a dinosaur. My kid draws pictures of dinosaurs and the dude scientist that she hands it to like thinks about how, you know, like Alice is just flighty and she doesn't know what she's talking about. Like that just, that doesn't get like a critical acclaim and giant commercial success if it's on the page today. You know, maybe I'm looking through this. I actually thought that was Crichton critiquing the dismissive hubris of thinking you know what you're talking about, but maybe I'm being too generous in that. Because mm-hmm. she turns out to be right, and like we learn later that she's right. But yeah, it, it, that that stuff definitely um, is a lot different. Uh, let's go to, well, geez, I mean, we got to talk about, I mean, it's impossible. Best moments. In which... Either. I mean, I look, I'm a movie first person. I will cede all best moments in the book to you, Amanda, unless all of my... I, the chair recognizes Amanda um, for, <laughs> for um, best, books in, best moments in the book that don't appear in the movie. Um, oh, best that don't appear... Well, Hammond dying. We already talked about that. Yeah. Um, there is a moment in the book where Muldoon is being chased by the Velociraptors and backs butt first into a culvert, <laughs> like into a pipe. <laughs> And then he spends probably like three pages considering what he's going to do if a velociraptor comes around through the other side and bites him on the butt. Yes. And it's amazing. <laughs> like, it is absolutely amazing because it's so humbling for this character yeah. who's been such a, like, giant <laughs> safari dude with, like, a rocket launcher. And then he spends two pages thinking about his yeah. butt. <laughs> Ass first down a drain pipe. Uh, it's a tough, <laughs> tough look for our guy there. Show title. <laughs> I know the feeling, metaphorically, at least. In the movie, I think there my two favorite moments in the movie are when Grant first sees the Brontosaurus, yeah. obviously. I cry every single really? time. Really? What are you what are you reacting to? Can you talk about unpack that for me a little bit? I don't know. It's just like he is so so person I do not personally deal with wonder well as a human yeah. like it, it irritates me a little me too a little much a like, little too close to whimsy for amanda i think well i'm fine I with mean, whimsy but like standing in front of a big tall mountain usually makes me want to throw up like okay. i just get dizzy and it's like very whatever but watching somebody you know i don't think we we don't let especially competent mm. professional men have these big moments of like emotional reactions to things that aren't anger and so seeing sam neil who is you know, functionally watching the culmination of everything he's ever dreamed of in life, but didn't even know he was dreaming of because it wasn't scientifically possible, stand in front of him and his just like complete awe is so touching. Yeah. And so I cry every single time. And then the the scene where the T-Rex starts walking and the water glass is shaking uh. is just so perfect. Like who came up with that? It's so dumb. It's just water, but it's so good. <laughs> it's like so it's terrifying. Good. It's so good. <laughs> Anybody hear that? It's a, um, it's an impact tremor is what it is. I'm fairly alarmed here. Uh, Rebecca, favorite scenes in either the book or movie? Mm, I love Grant laying over the Triceratops mm. stomach while it breathes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was one of my favorite when I was a kid. Now I see she's the most beautiful thing I ever saw. <laughs> Um, I just have always loved that moment. I, I also love the moment when they're about to climb the electric fence and he does the classic dad joke thing where he grabs it and pretends that he's getting shocked. Like, it's 
It's great. A mean thing to do to two kids that are in the middle of trauma. Like a thing that I said out loud watching this the other night was like, these people all are going to have so much PTSD. Like, <laughs> so, so much. Like, there is so much trauma happening in this book. And it's like not funny that he does that, but it's really, it's real funny. really funny that he does that. I love the um, dinosaur eats man, woman inherits mm. the earth. Dinosaurs eat man. Woman inherits the earth. And then just forever, I have loved seeing Gennaro sitting on the toilet with his pants around his ankles and get eaten by can a I, dinosaur. Can I, talk a, Hail Mary. can I talk about that for a minute? Let's talk. <laughs> Art, he's wearing shorts. His pants aren't around his ankles. <laughs> I thought that for the longest time, too. But when you realize he's wearing shorts and you're watching on a big TV, he's just sitting on the toilet. But, but he's flipped the toilet lid up for some reason to sit on it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why he's not just sitting on the flat top toilet seat. He's lifted it up to sit on the crap hole part of this. Like, why but is he doing that? Still... Sit oh, on the flat part. He's like his butt is down in the. I don't understand it at all. I guess you're being. It's like he weird. He ran in there and lifted the toilet seat up and sat he on. Sat it. down. Very strange moment for our guy Gennaro. Well, for the last twenty five years, I've been picturing him going to the. I did too. I did too. Only recently, like, oh, he just has shorts on. That I just never put together, too. That is really, uh, really good stuff. The shorts and the loafers is like a just a perfect wardrobe. There's a lot of there's a really there's a lot of really great like almost single shots, but like Amanda said, the the water. But also, I love the shot of Gennaro in the beginning when they're going to the amber mine, and he's just yes. standing on that little on raft, raft thing, like with his mm-hmm. briefcase. Mm-hmm. I was like, first of all, could you <laughs> what he traveled all the way there to talk to that guy about what? Anyway, that's a separate. He, I don't Looking know. Looking like such a putz. It's like I don't know what that is. Like, what is he doing? He's like, he's like me. He's a digger. It's like, okay, you knew all this already. Anyway, it's a good scene, but doesn't narratively make any sense. I'm not sure I've got a whole. I mean, again, I, there's so many of these moments are so indelibly marked in my brain. It's hard to know. But as an action horror set piece, the T-Rex attack when the first T-Rex attack with the two jeeps, mm-hmm. it's choreographed beautifully. Mm-hmm. It's almost like. It's almost like they're it's on it's almost like a play. They're using the constraints and the available logistics so well, spinning the car, flipping it, going over the side, using the fence. You know, it just nothing seems dumb. Every action someone takes one of my pet peeves is, as you probably could tell by like why would they go back and check for the Raptors to get the hell out of there? I really hate when a character does something that makes no sense. In this movie, even when people make mistakes, you understand why they did. They do it, right? Mm. Like in this mm. scene, Grant, like he knows a little bit more, and this is more in the movie than the book where he's like figuring out later, but like the Tyrannosaur is going to follow motion. So if I can get motion moving away from the Tyrannosaur, I throw the flare over there. And Malcolm, to his credit, wants to help. He, he's willing mm-hmm. to put his body on the line and you know help Grant, but he doesn't understand what's going on, and so he gets himself got there for the moment. Like everyone else does, everyone's doing things that make sense. Like, um, Wayne Knight's, I can't remember his name, Nedry's plan is actually Nedry. a pretty good one, but the storm <clears throat> screws it up. Like, if I have mm-hmm. one complaint about the book and the movies, like, the whole thing's a little too overdetermined. Like, it's the automation, and it's the dinosaurs breeding, and there's the storm, and we have a nefarious... Okay, that kind of undermines to me Malcolm being right. <laughs> like, okay, well, if people mm-hmm. just weren't jackholes, this maybe would have come <laughs> out okay, but maybe that's part of the theory that they never touch on. But I did that scene, it's a wonder of action choreography and enclosed space and then amanda i mean not stole my thunder but i think that's the thing we were all sort of saying the blend of physical effects and computer effects 
is a marvel. It's a marvel. It's a marvel to the point where Ames and I mm-hmm. were going through is like, is that real? That's real. That's not real. That's like trying to yeah, figure out Yeah, the mind where. did the same yeah. thing. And that is mm-hmm. such a marvel. Especially in the kitchen when the Velociraptors yes. attack the kids oh, in yes. the kitchen. And talk about a great yeah. scene. Yeah. A great scene. But that when you get the T-Rex and then it's running and the reverse shot is CG, but then its head is real. What it does is allows a suspension of disbelief is... I know that this is fake, but that I don't know specifically how it's done lets me invest even more in it, which I think is mm-hmm. the wonder of the movie. And we didn't talk at all where this movie falls in sort of the the evolution of computer graphics in movies. Crichton, interestingly, I think in his Westworld 1973, or no, one of the early movies he directed was the first to use 2D computer graphics in a movie, which is fascinating. And this really is, there were computer graphics in movies before, but where you're making computer graphics that looked as if they were practical effects and still hold up. Like Toy Story is only two years away, but it feels a billion years away from Avatar, the later, you know, the prequel movies as they're like an orgy of sci-fi computer graphics gone wrong. But this one is so deft and so, and I don't know if it's the constraint, kind of like in a Jaws sort of way where there's only some things they could do with computer and some things they couldn't. So they were forced by the technology to make these compromises that worked. I don't know. But mm-hmm. that's the thing I look at from a movie making point of view. It's going to hold up for another fifty years, I think. I, I don't see. And how everything it won't. else is unsatisfying, which is so goofy. Yes. Because the older I get, the more and the more computer generated things are, mm-hmm. the more I have trouble suspending my disbelief. Yeah. Like, and these puppets that literally <laughs> had humans in them moving them around <laughs> are somehow more like cool looking <laughs> than yeah. these amazing computer graphics that we can make. 30 years later, it's just, it makes no sense. It's wild. It's part of this, like, I'm just an elder millennial, and I'm just going to be old and grumpy about this forever, and nothing <laughs> you know, looks as Amanda, good as Jurassic Park. Advances in technology don't necessarily advance. <laughs> Hey-o! Uh, we're still using the same amount of man and trikes as we were in the 1930s, uh, apparently. <laughs> Where else do you want to go in the movie? Any other moments you want to you wanna call out before we get on to stuff that maybe doesn't work as well, we could, or quotes, I guess, is next on the, on the list? Mm-mm. All right. Quotes. There's so many. So many. I mean, obviously, life finds a way. I have a t-shirt that says Clever Girl on it. That has Clever Girl is really good. On it. Clever Girl is really good. The I, woman inherits the earth thing mm-hmm. is amazing. Yeah. I think, too, there's... It's not really a quote, but we've talked a lot about DNA and cloning being the, the mainstreaming of this idea. The idea of chaos theory... Where where do mm. we stand culturally on chaos theory these days? I have no idea. But this was like this was the second big idea, right? The cloning was one big idea, but maybe even less familiar to people was this idea of what chaos theory was about. And it's hard to explain. And I'm not. I think the yeah. book just has more time, as Rebecca said. But I'm not sure the movie. Okay, the water goes down twice in two different ways, which means these dinosaurs are going to eat us. Uh, is the the logic? It's it's yeah, hard. I, I think the butterfly effect concept is in the cultural water yeah. these mm-hmm. days, like that people understand that. But I'm also not sure that Jurassic Park introduced that culturally. Like that's a small part of the way that Malcolm mm-hmm. explains chaos theory. Um, but I think that if anything about chaos theory has really entered the like popular discourse, it's that like that notion that a butterfly can flap its wings right. in whatever Tokyo. And then there's a rainstorm in Arizona. I don't know like mm-hmm. where he says it is. And, 
in the story, but I think that that's what's held. And now we're doing like pop culture stuff about string theory. Like there's mm-hmm. always some mm-hmm. sort of fringe scientific, you know, or like not edge case, but there is like some sort of scientific theory that's out there and hard to comprehend right. and on the edges that makes for great TV writing or movie writing if you do it well, because like people don't know enough about it to argue against it. Mm-hmm. And the the general concept that as Malcolm presents it of chaos theory, that a system like this is going to like a complex system like this is going to do unpredictable things, feels believable and true. And you can build a big thing around it. Yeah. I guess it makes more emotional sense than it makes logical sense because like chaos theory applies to everything, right? It's not just, dinosaur right. parks like that for some reason like <laughs> oh no dinosaur parks we better get chaos theory well butterflies happen and yet we're all still alive I, it's it's a little confusing there um any googly things i mean the making of documentaries for this is wild like mm. the 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 man and puppet the shots where mm-hmm. how they're figuring out to hold space for computer generation um is all really interesting stuff. So I'd encourage people who are interested in it to, to look at all those kinds of things. We didn't talk about it. I mean, maybe maybe it's so obvious that we didn't... An enormous financial success. Just, a, mm-hmm. you know, one, and a, one billion dollars globally, and that's $1993. So I think it's something like three... Did you say three and a half billion, Rebecca? Maybe, that, maybe that's yeah, the total franchise. Billion. I don't remember if that's box office take there. You know, the sequels, some of what Amanda said about the wonder of Meh. seeing it for the first time... Mm-hmm. You don't get that the second time just because I'm not even sure those movies are good. Even if you even if you take out the well, you can't have the the first time again. I just don't think they're good on their on on the face of them. Are they? The the, the no. subsequent ones? No. Nah. Not and I don't it. even think the book is that good. Lost World, R- Amanda. You probably typed it out. Did you? What did you use? Calligraphy. I didn't. No, calligraphy I read for that it. One? <laughs> um, I didn't. As happy as I was to have Malcolm back from the dead, um, you know, it cheapens. Yeah the initial experience Joyce Carol Oates oh no award we all already talked about Wayne Knight is there anything else the only black man in the movie dies well it's it's almost worse than that right I mean is the (laughs) well not worse but also the the fat guy dies Uh, Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. it's not really offensive but that the lawyer gets killed and everyone seems okay with that is not it's not it's not (laughs) the most humanistic look in the world I'm not okay with him dying because he's a lawyer I think everyone gets okay with him dying because he abandoned the children that's right I guess that's a very very fair point in the book anyone who's not white their race is mentioned like multiple times I did notice that one too it's like the two black two black guys in suits I'm like okay that's interesting Mm -hmm. I guess the Haitian girl who brings Hammond the ice cream right 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 the um Mm -hmm. Costa Rican is it a it's a nurse who gets asked for her cultural knowledge of ghosts or something about yeah. that. We talk about her skin color, things like that. Could this movie be remade today? Would it be interesting to just remake first Jurassic Park with no knowledge of anything else that goes on? It's the same kind of setup. You don't, it, I don't know that you need it. Could you do it? What would be different about the movie if it were made today? I don't think it's so. such a high bar to clear. You don't think so? I don't think so because these aren't questions that we're asking right now. Like, we're not thinking about the dangers of genetic modifications for things as seriously, I think, as we were when it was emerging. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as impressive. It wouldn't be as impressive visually because we, they wouldn't use robots, as we know, because they are making these movies now. Like, right. they're continuing to make... And one just came out last year, right? Um, yeah. And it's just all computer-generated. It's all very, like, monster mash kind of a thing. Um 
But no, I don't think so. Because we're not, we, we don't care about the things that this movie cares about as much as we cared about them in 1993. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the closest we would get to like a, a sci-fi thriller that would ask the same like size of question, it would have to be something about climate, climate change. change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which Crichton's track record on was not awesome, by the way. I'm not sure if we did any reading. Uh, he was a, mm. I mean, it was more of a big data question, like, do we know for sure? Um, but it was a little bit of a tough look for Crichton in the early, uh, the mid 2000s to, to, to see what he thought about climate change initially. I was thinking about, um, again, Dan Brown on the brain, you know, that story of my life, but mm-hmm. it's too bad Crichton didn't get to write an AI novel. He would have done something really interesting with AI, I think. It's right up his alley, right? Of like this emerging technology that has unintended consequences. Like Origin, the Dan Brown book, really should have been written mm-hmm. by Michael Crichton. Like it was fine. I liked it for its Dan Browniness, but like that's a Michael Crichton, that's a Michael uh, Crichton book for sure. Well, let's let's play the game for a moment. If it was being made, if it, if Jurassic Park never existed and it was being made today, I think it would still be great. I think the CG, mm-hmm. one of the again to, to English major corner for a minute. I'm so sorry, everyone listening. I have to do this, but like. You know, one of the classic English major moves is to ask, are we sure this isn't about art? Isn't the whole thing about art making in some way? And, you know, there's that part where we're watching Grant be in wonder at the dinosaurs. At the same time, we're being, we're watching and being in wonder at the movie making, right? At that, like that, that this is possible. We're having the same experience that Grant is having the first time you see this movie, especially as a kid. But it's about what movies can do, not about about biological DNA, gene sequencing can do. And I thought that was an interesting moment of like, if it's about kind of art making in some way, the resolution is that like computer graphics and practical filmmaking can live in harmony rather than letting mm. sort of this, these, this thing take over. And Spielberg has gone the other way. Like he made Ready Player One, which is a nightmare of computer graphics for reasons that yeah. are obvious, but it just doesn't work. It doesn't look anywhere close to like something you could believe in. Um, but that awe that we experience, I think is special in a way that I can, for me, it's only Star Wars and maybe the first Lord of the Rings movie in 2000 or whenever that mm. was. Like, I mm-hmm. think those are the only two where I've ha- had any experience, um, anywhere like that. But if we're making it, let's recast the movie with today's actors. You got any thoughts about who would do what in these? I, I oh. don't know. <laughs> no. Like, it's just, it's just so perfect. I mean, Richard Attenborough, is, is he still alive? Uh, no, David Attenborough okay. has been David on Richard Attenborough. Is, yeah, he's still narrating uh, Blue Planet Nine BBC. or something BBC. like that. <laughs> yeah. Documentaries about the ocean. <laughs> what about Brad Pitt as Ian Malcolm with oh. less sleaze and more snacks? Oh. That's it's interesting. I mean, he's fifty-nine now or fifty-six. Yeah. He can still be a rock star scientist. Yeah, I think gender flipping Grant and Sattler would yes. be interesting. I'm not sure. I mean. There's a, a million actors and actresses that could do it, but because so, um, if we're just trying to keep the ages the same, Sam Neill is 46 uh, it, when this movie comes out. So there's a there's a really strong group of actresses of that you know of that ilk. It could it could be a whole bunch of different people um, for sure. I would like to gender flip Hammond. I think that like Meryl oh. Streep as Ooh. Hammond would be really interesting, that like is a interesting. really powerful because it would be hard to play. I think it would be hard to play a wealthy, powerful, elderly woman as an idiot. Mm. Because Hammond mm. is an idiot, right? Yeah. Like he's a naive man-child. 
but you don't really get that with so like what would Hammond look like if played by an intelligent person <laughs> or like played as an intelligent person would be Ooh. interesting to see. oh yeah Rebecca like to I bring it back to I'm... Watchmen like Lady True and the Ham like a Lady True type character in the Hammond role is interesting yeah mm. I don't know if I want that because I think it's so critical to the Hammond role that he's like he is a monument of like old white man privilege and he's intense. I mean, he's literally wearing like, all know. white at all. I mean, yeah, he has yeah, a white yeah, beard. Just, like he's the whitest just, person a, that's ever existed. A lot of the criticism that Malcolm levels against Hammond as a representative of all mm. the things Hammond is a representative of don't work as well if Hammond's not an old white guy. Yeah, I think I you would you would maybe Jason more Moma playing it like Lady True does for making a name for yourself, like trying to break through a glass ceiling of a kind, like like, you know, like her gender becomes part of the reason to be ambitious, maybe in that way. Where Hammond, I, I will say one, the one piece in the movie that I felt humanized Hammond in a way the book really doesn't is that scene where he's eating the melting ice cream, talking about his first flea circus and wanting to make mm. something real um, that wasn't mm. an illusion. But his naivety, I still think, comes through. But that's a, that's a nice scene as well. I think, you know, this is maybe a little... I think Julia Roberts would be a great Grant. Oh, I agree Ooh. with you, Amanda, but tell me why I do. I can't articulate it. I can't it. decide. Like, she's... Grant has goofy moments, yeah. and but he is able to be straight, you know, and serious when it's called for. He's intellectual, which Julia Roberts played professors before. Mm -hmm. Like, she's done every aspect of this character mm -hmm. before. Um, and she's she could she has gravitas. She could wear the hell out of some khaki shorts. <laughs> she one hundred percent could wear some tall socks. Yes, <laughs> and it would be fine. Yeah, that's a really good one too because that Grant a has a sort of. A, and he's got this like Americana. Yeah, thing. right. The a world weariness, but he's also not. Um, I don't know, resigned, I guess. And there's a boyishness to him, like you know, as we see when he's you know laying on the trike side. And Julia Roberts has a. A girlishness like that, uh, like a kind of a doe-eyed wonder, like one of the reasons she yeah. is who mm -hmm. she is, because she's got those big old brown eyes that you could just, you know, look into all day. And she would be really, I could see her taking her sunglasses off and looking up in astonishment at a brontosaurus or, or something like that, too, for sure. Yeah. That's a good one. Mm, I think like Halle Berry would be interesting. Mm. Or Ju mm. like Julianne Moore, I'm not sure. But right well, Julianne Moore is in this movie. She's in The Lost World. Yeah, that's right. Laura Dern. That's right. She's like, she, she's like do it during Laura Dern. Yeah. Good. That's probably why it's in my brain. <laughs> I think that Chris Pratt is not actually a Grant character. Nope. He is a Muldoon. Agree. So that would, if they remade it <laughs> with him as Muldoon, I think that would be better. But I would also accept Jason Moma as Muldoon. That would be Ooh. hilarious. How about Jennifer? How about do Jennifer I, Lawrence as Muldoon? Yeah. I don't know if either of those guys has like the serious face that Muldoon requires. They look like they got him out of central casting for, I mean, there's his chin, his nose, his eyes. Like it's almost they were casting for a look rather than an actor. And I don't know how well, you in do the book, that. He's, he, in the book, Crichton calls him the great white African. 
Yeah, tough. Which is exactly who tough. Muldoon is, yeah. and it's so gross. It's so, it's <laughs> so, so I would gross. love that to not be like a white yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah, But I guess we only infer that in the movie because they talk nothing about... It almost feels to me like he's playing a safari hunter in the movie, like weirdly. <laughs> like it's not actually the thing, like he wants to be the thing. And what is up with that hat? Why do those hats you button up on one side? Is that to put your rifle next to your ear? Like what is, is the purpose of that? Okay, I always wondered about that. It's to make room for the sight. All right, it's the, the hardest one yet for some of us you get to save one the book or the movie to me it's not a question so I'll, it's a movie to me rebecca it's not e- it's not hard for you either is it yeah i just i think it would have been potentially different if i had encountered the book when i was younger but it's the movie all the way amanda i would also say the movie actually oh really because i think that the book is very is important to me personally yeah. but the movie is more important culturally mm. Uh, and in like in film as a as a business, so I think the movie. Yeah, we we get to keep the movie. A, a young Amanda would have never learned to type. She'd just be writing she everything by hand. <laughs> but we would still just just hunt and pack. We'd still have the movie there. Um, I think that's it. Any last thoughts? Anything you didn't get out that you need to shout out before we close this puppy down and um, turn the lights back on? Mm-mm. No, it was really fun. I'm really glad I read the book. Yeah, it was cool to like see the origin of where the story from the movie came from. I guess the you last read the, the last shout out that I just realized this time too, whoever the production designer was for the movie for like all the signage and all the vehicles and all the the interior design of the buildings, it's all wonderful stuff. It's just really truly wonderful stuff um, to look at there. I don't think this might be our last Michael Crichton. Like, we're not going to go do Congo or something like that. Like, none, <laughs> like, none of that. Sphere. None of it holds up, does it, Amanda? Like, did you read all no. the Crichton after the fact in the movies? And you've done I have the- read all of them, I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, including The Rising Sun, which is the worst. But no, yeah. Sphere is terrible. That's, uh, the racism is really yeah. strong in, in Rising mm-hmm. Sun. And Disclosure, the sexual harassment stuff is not what you want. The whole book is a Joyce Carol Oates uh, uh, O'Neill Award um, mm-hmm. for disclosure. Well, five wives. That's a hashtag now. Hashtag five wives. <laughs> five, five wives. Mikey five wives. Mikey five wives. <laughs> what a terrible gangster name. Nah. Michael been married a ton. Um, Amanda, Rebecca. Didn't learn his lesson. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you.